0: Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations.
1: From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman.
0: I'm Nathan Connolly.
2: I'm Ed airs Nathan, Joanne, our colleague Brian Bowell and I are all historians. Each week, we explore the history of a topic that's been in the news. Since June is prime vacation time, maybe some of you have downloaded this podcast for a road trip or for a flight. So we thought we'd travel with you to some great places. The only question is, where? Well, Ed, in the mid-19th century, all
1: you had to do was open up a newspaper or a magazine to see the hottest tourist attractions. But one of the destinations might actually surprise you.
0: No more interesting or profitable expedition can employ a day than a visit to the lunatic asylum.
3: That's right. Mental asylums. Asylum tourism was a widespread and popular phenomenon that attracted thousands of visitors every year. This is Trent
1: University historian Janet Mirren. She says that this peculiar form of tourism took off in the 1830s. In fact, asylums and prisons attracted visitors from all over the United States and overseas for much of the 19th century. They came
3: from all over the world. France, Poland, Germany, Canada, countries in South America. Mirren says
1: asylum administrators actively courted tourists. And visitors were invited to picnic in the well-manicured gardens and take guided tours of the
3: facilities. They could even hang out with patients. So you may have exchanged some tobacco, trinkets of jewelry in order to have a conversation with them, to hear about their history. Uh, Visitors tasted their food. Some visitors requested being confined in certain contraptions that were increasingly used to restrain patients. One of the most popular asylums in Utica, New York, drew more than
1: 10,000 visitors a year. The crowds were so big that one guard told a visitor...
4: We have been compelled to deny admission to the general public at any other hours than between 2 and 5 p.m. We were actually overwhelmed with visitors.
0: Marin acknowledges how distasteful the practice of asylum tourism sounds to modern ears. But tourists back then weren't just indulging in voyeurism. She says leisure was supposed to have an educational, even moral purpose in the 19th century. And U.S. asylums were on the cutting edge of scientific progress. Or so Americans believed. They certainly represented a stark contrast to the closed, crowded, and dirty hospitals in Europe that warehoused the mentally ill. Many tourists were deeply moved by what they saw. One visitor considered the asylum tour one of the most touching and beautiful spectacles we've ever witnessed.
3: The belief that mental illness could be cured and treated in a carefully controlled environment of an asylum, um, this is a new idea that the United States would be a pioneer in the field of mental health care.
0: But Mira notes that patients probably didn't find the contact with tourists so uplifting.
3: Likely patients viewed these interactions as sources of pain. They nevertheless often used these interactions to their own benefit. They would pickpocket visitors Uh, They would use them to their own amusement by telling them wild stories and laughing at them behind their backs of their gullibility. Um, They would often give them letters to pass on to family members and friends since patients' mail out of the asylum was carefully controlled.
0: By the early 20th century, the public had lost faith in asylums. They were seen as poorly run, their cures ineffective, and their treatment of patients deplorable. So, asylum tourism all but disappeared. But it vanished for another reason, too. The nature of American tourism itself had changed.
3: These asylums are competing with dance halls, with amusement parks, with theaters. And tourism becomes something for the sake of relaxation, pleasure, pleasure. Getting away, recuperating. It's not about engaging in social problems and how best to address those social problems.
2: Today on the show, a history of vacations.
1: We'll hear about the expansion of the concept of leisure to the middle class. We'll learn about a type of 19th century virtual tourism that was all the rage and the green book that helped African-Americans travel during the Jim Crow era.
2: But first, we're going to hear from a person who has a very peculiar relationship to leisure. She actually hangs out in resorts and dares to call it research. Cindy Aaron is the author of Working at Play, A History of Vacations in the United States. She says that while upper-class Americans had been going to luxury spas and resorts for a long time, few Americans of the 19th century associated travel with pleasure. And why would they? (laughs) The roads were terrible. There were no budget hotels or motel chains. But then train travel arrived, and railroad companies in need of passengers started building resorts along their lines. By the 1870s, tens of thousands of Americans were on the move for pleasure.
5: Now, most Americans are still farmers, and farmers can't very easily take off time in the summer. But there's a growing population, especially in the cities, of people who work at what we have come to call white-collar jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, They work as clerks, or they work as professionals, or they're school teachers, and they have time off in the summer, often with pay. And as the population of potential vacationers increases, savvy entrepreneurs decide, hmm, that lake that's not too far away, put up a few cabins and we could advertise that as a resort. And pretty soon, just little places dotting the railroad uh, become advertised as vacation resorts.
2: Well, something I was surprised by that you just said was uh, people had paid vacations in the 19th -hmm. century. Mm Where would that come from?
5: You know... There was a belief that people who worked with their brains rather than with their hands might suffer from something that was called brain fatigue. Um, Hey, I've been there. Yeah. (laughs) And that they would wear themselves out. And so they needed, I mean, the, the best medical evidence said that these people needed time off so they could refresh themselves if they were to be healthy and to be able to go back to their work. Interestingly enough, people who worked with their hands and who worked at hard physical manual labor, those people, nobody believed that they needed time off from work. Uh, they did how co- not How convenient, paid huh? vacation. True. I mean, those people had time off from work, but it was called unemployment. It was not <laughs> called uh, vacation time. Yeah. Now, certainly not everybody, but, you know, federal government, state government, uh, corporations, even small businesses give their employees a week's paid vacation.
2: Well, that's amazing. And this wasn't the result of union activity or struggle. It's just that they read the health reports and decided that they want to keep these people productive I the rest of so. the year. They... I guess oh. so.
5: There, there, there seemed to be very little debate about it, where by the 1910s and, and 20s, there's a huge debate about whether or not working class people, you know, people who work in factories, but whether they ought to be given paid vacations or not. That becomes a very large debate.
2: Well, you know, So what you just described, it sounds in many ways as if the modern vacation was sort of born fully grown.
5: I think it was. And what I found particularly interesting was the discussion about vacations in the 19th century. People thought that it was a good idea. On the other hand, there was a sort of undertone of fear about dangers of vacations, that vacations in some ways might be harmful for the very reason that they separated people from work. And that they uh, introduced the potential temptations of idleness. The way people in the nineteenth century resolved this problem was by finding ways to take vacations that would keep them, in some ways, safe from the temptations that vacations presented. Uh, by taking what I call self-improving vacations, going to places like Chautauqua, uh-huh. which was a resort in in upstate New York, where One could enjoy the lake and the boating and the swimming and various forms of entertainment, but which also offered lectures and courses so that you could spend some of your time in self-improvement. And Chautauqua begin to appear all across the United States. The first one starts in the 1870s, and then they sort of pop up, uh, and they're quite popular.
2: You know, it sounds to me like uh, people were doing the closest thing to work they could without actually working.
5: I think that's true. I think that's true. I think, you know, that a lot of the forms of vacationing that were devised in the late 19th century were ways of keeping us close to work or at least um, creating places where the temptations weren't too great. There were lots of resorts that grew out of uh, religious campgrounds, mostly Methodist Mm -hmm. campgrounds. And, you know, these places had rules, you know, which, you know, you couldn't swim on the Sabbath and there was no alcohol and, you know, no smoking Another example is just tourism, you know, being a tourist.
2: Which is considered educational by its very nature, huh?
5: Right, and not relaxing, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Tourists are very busy vacationers, and they, you know, and in the 19th century, they went to places, historic landmarks, people made um, pilgrimages to the burial sites of famous Americans. So then these were the same kind of educational tours that we drag our children on, I think.
2: I'm sure we don't drag our children. I'm sure the children are <laughs> delighted to go to burial places of famous people.
5: Yes, some are. Many <laughs> Who would wouldn't want to go I'm see sure. that? <laughs> right <laughs> um I don't want to give the mistaken impression that everybody was always very good when they were on vacation and okay, there's okay. lots of evidence about flirtations going on that were suspicious about you know women you know go, going into the into the ocean and coming out with their many layers of bathing clothes clinging to their bodies and you know exhibiting themselves in ways that were decidedly uh, improper in the 19th Cindy, Cindy,
2: Cindy, this is a family show? (laughs) This is a
5: family show. Okay, Okay. I'll do my best. I don't want to talk
2: about layers of wet clothing (laughs) clinging.
5: So I can't count the numbers of people who took one kind of vacation versus another kind of vacation. Um, But I think what I can say is that both of these strands have survived. I mean, you know, people who go to health spas and eat abstemiously exercise continuously and lose as much weight as they can. You know, if you look at things like Elder Hostel and the various people who go on vacations with um, often a historian who's an expert, right, who will teach them about the places where they have been. Who wouldn't want to do that? That's right. I mean, this is a huge industry. All the places like Epcot or, you know, the the various self-improving places that we can take our children I mean, those places uh, attract a lot of people.
2: Yeah, you hear people say, we, we went to Disney World, but we spent a lot of time at Epcot.
5: <laughs> exactly.
2: So it was all right.
5: <laughs> exactly. Uh, so I, I think that all that persists. On the other hand, I think the other side of it persists as well. You know, people go on vacation to just kick back. Um, I think it's probably harder in some ways to just kick back today because of the ways in which technology has kept us connected to our work. It's too easy to keep in touch and to keep working um, in your traditional work while you are on vacation.
2: So does this mark the beginning of the end of the process that you've traced since the beginning of the 19th century?
5: I certainly hope not. (laughs) You know, I I think it's important for us to be away from work.
2: But you know what? I know that you've taken well-deserved time off to be with us here on Backstory, and I really appreciate it, Cindy. Well,
5: it's always a pleasure, Ed.
2: Cindy Aaron is a professor emerita of history at the University of Virginia. She's the author of Working at Play, A History of Vacations in the United States.
1: Earlier, we heard from historian Janet Murin of Trent University in Ontario, Canada. She's the author of Prisons, Asylums, and the Public, Institutional Visiting in the 19th Century.
0: It's time to take a short break. When we return, steering clear of Jim Crow's roadblocks.
1: So, you know, guys, one of the things that I found was really interesting in that piece that we just heard is it does kind of talk about how American views of vacation sort of come full circle and that we're now partly because of technology in a moment where people aren't really vacating in the way that they did before. And what's striking about that to me is that if you go back to early America they also i think didn't have a sense of you know capital v vacation uh, as mm-hmm. a as a thing to do that it meant going away somewhere exotic i think when you look through their writings when they talk about vacation vacation just means not working and i Seems think like that was alien all it
2: concept, meant concept doesn't it
1: yes i know oh my <laughs> yeah. gosh not working <laughs> i think that's all it meant and i think also that um it was not easy to take a vacation in that time period and then that matters too right because travel was So hard. The technology of travel was so, in a sense, primitive that, you know, you had to take a horse and then a carriage and then a boat and then another carriage and then you had to walk. And it had to be a pretty wonderful destination that I would be going to if I was willing (laughs) to do all of that trekking just to get there.
2: Well, you know, there's interesting continuity across uh, from the late 18th century across the entire 19th century that kind of fits into what Cindy Aaron was saying. Uh, If you wanted to have a vacation and you didn't want to feel guilty about it, you could do it for your health. Is the story mm-hmm. that people told themselves, ah. and so that <laughs> springs the, right? exactly? You go to the springs, yeah. and it requires being there for maybe two, three months in the summer. It just happens to be cooler, and happens to be great food, and all kinds of attractive people to to flirt with. But other than that, it's really there for your health. Um, and I, I think <laughs> about this story uh, after the Civil War, when railroads started uh, reaching into the South, and uh, a lot of Northerners were coming south uh, to the mountains or other places for their health. And one visitor goes to south. Georgia, which is pretty much just filled with pine trees, but that was considered good for your health if you had a lung problem. And the the visitor looks around and says, "What, what do you folks raise here? And the farmer says, well, Sick Yankees, principally.
6: That's a great story. And, and
2: so it, it strikes me that, you know, Americans are kind of easing into uh, this new world of vacations, coming up with old stories to explain these new destinations. But the railroad seems to kind of shuffle everything, doesn't it, Nathan?
0: It does. It does. I mean, you have, you know, whole parts of the country that become accessible for the first time by virtue of the railroad in a kind of mass way. You know, so, you know, South Florida as a vacation place, you know, really becomes available in the 1890s. Right. I mean, even the beach a- as a location at all is really hard for most people to get to. I mean, it's hard to think mm-hmm. about now because so much of the country is on the coast. But if, for instance, if you lived in, you know, Manhattan somewhere or, you know, in one of these ethnic neighborhoods in the 19-teens and 20s, trying to get to Long Island to go swimming was almost impossible. You know, the beach in in and of itself as a place is really kind of iconic in American vacation, you know, imagery. But it wasn't always even available for most Americans.
2: Hmm. So who lived on those beaches before they became vacation spots?
0: (laughs) Well, if you're looking at, you know, the areas in the Northeast, obviously you have a lot of people who are, you know, farming and using the areas around the coast for various kind of pastoral purposes. But in the South, where you had a large African-American population, you had a huge black population that actually had coastal property mm. because sandy land on, on the seaside in most instances was the worst place to grow crops. And so it was the worst land for African-Americans to, to use and to access. Mm. And it wasn't really until you see the kind of expansion of a beachgoing culture, 1930s, 1940s, that African-Americans are now really endangered of being displaced from those same stretches of land.
2: Wow. Yes, it turns out I was just in coastal South Carolina over the weekend, not for vacation. Uh, <laughs> let me hasten to add. Which I, I was, was wor- going to <laughs> ask you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was working the whole time, had no fun. But let the record also show, because I'm an honest guy, I did have one <laughs> awesome meal of shrimp and grits. That I actually so fun enjoyed. was involved. There was <laughs> yes, fun so involved. Fun, fun was had. So... Uh, <laughs> But I I did walk around, this is Beaufort, South Carolina, and read Mm -hmm. the historic interpretation they had there, and it had the remarkable transformation of being one of the very poorest places in the United States in the 1930s to being sort of a tourist Mecca in the 1940s and 50s. And the people who lost out were the African-American people who had occupied all the Sea Islands there ever since the days of slavery and then the very first days of the Civil War. So it sounds like you're telling an even larger story, Nathan.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, the the, the story of kind of beachfront development in the southeast is largely a story of displacement. um, And it changes the meaning of vacation, the meaning of of leisure. And for African-Americans who grew up in these places, I mean, me as somebody who grew up in South Florida, sometimes the last place I want to go is actually
7: to the beach. (laughs) Well,
2: that's kind of funny. Growing up in the mountains of East Tennessee, vacation only meant one thing which was getting to the beach as fast as you could. Is that right? And, <laughs> yeah. And for us, that only meant one place. There was only one place that was really cool, which is Myrtle Beach, oh. the Redneck Riviera, uh, it was called. <laughs> and it just felt like heaven to go there and massive amounts of miniature golf. And the idea in the late 50s, early 60s of getting fresh seafood, it mm. just blew our minds.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> let but let it. me ask a question, though. So, yeah. so both of you guys, did your families vacation a lot?
2: No, 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 not really. But,
1: but more than once.
2: I think we went to Myrtle Beach three times, and that was okay. that was my childhood vacation experience.
1: Well, as far as I can remember, there was one family vacation. We were not vacationing, kind of, Freemans, and there was no camp involved. You know, summer was like now I shall be at home and play with toys. But there was <laughs> one summer where my dad wanted to go to visit his college town, which was Hanover, New Hampshire. So we drove up, and of course, my one memory. <laughs> Number one, I saw bunk beds for the first time, and that was exciting. Number two, I saw hammocks for the first time. That was really exciting. (laughs) Third part is my brother got sick on the way up in the car. (laughs) That is my memory of the only Freeman vacation. And somehow, that sounds like a family
6: vacation.
2: (laughs) Travel and tourism really took off in the 20th century with the automobile, But 18th and 19th century Americans still managed to find a virtual way to travel, panoramas. These were
1: huge, scrolled-up paintings that traveling artists set up in local theaters. They transported audiences to stunning vistas and landscapes around the world. But one of the most popular scenes was actually something closer to home, the Mississippi River. 19th century Americans saw the river as a kind of American Nile a natural wonder surpassing anything in Europe. Five different Mississippi panoramas toured the United States and Europe in the 1840s and 1850s. Now, imagine you lived in a small, isolated New England town and a panorama of the mighty Mississippi rolled into town. The ads promised to transport you right down to the Mississippi itself, all from the comfort of your theater seat. Author Lee Sandlin describes this experience in... Wicked River, the Mississippi when it last ran wild. We wanted to give you a sense of what these panoramas actually felt like with a reading from his book by actor Joseph Bromfield.
7: The Mississippi panoramas were most likely around 20 feet tall and a couple of hundred yards long. They were much too large ever to be displayed all at once. Instead, they were shown in theaters by gaslight, like primordial movies. Two cylinders were set on opposite sides of the stage. The panorama was gradually unrolled from one and wound up on the other. There'd be a narrator standing at the side of the stage, keeping things lively by telling stories and cracking jokes and scoring off hecklers in the audience. There'd also be music, usually a piano or an organ, though at the classier theaters there might be a small orchestra. What the audience saw differed from one panorama to the next, but it took the same general form, a succession of scenes as might be witnessed from a steamboat on a voyage from one of the upper branches of the river down to New Orleans. Vista after vista, spectacle after spectacle, the father of waters unfurled itself in serene majesty. One newspaper reviewer described seeing bluffs, Bars, islands, rocks and mounds, points and cliffs without numbers and of fantastic variety of form. The panorama artists crowded the view with eye catching scenes of natural drama. Thunderstorms towering over bluffs, blizzards burying forests, prairie fires stretching from horizon to horizon. There were also scenes of the great calamities and disasters of the day. The desertion of the Mormon city of Nauvoo in central Illinois, for instance. Another favorite was the fire that destroyed the waterfront district of St. Louis in 1849. This was a spectacular scene showing fleeing crowds, desperate companies of firemen, the night sky over the city billowing with black smoke and showering down lurid red sparks. This image was always greeted with a shocked hush from the spectators before the grand flow of the river resumed. The panoramas also naturally touched on the hot-button political issues of the day. The most heated of these questions was the forcible exile of the Native American populations from the eastern half of the continent into the Great Plains. Against these dark images were set upbeat scenes of new growth. The river valley was being colonized at a furious clip, and the panoramas recorded the signs of occupation everywhere. Settlements hacked out of the wilderness. Vistas of deforested and freshly planted farmland, the plantations occupying the swamps, the new steeple-spiked towns rising on the highest bluffs. And above all there were the world-famous steamboats. They were shown bustling everywhere, from the great harbors of St. Louis and New Orleans to the lonely reaches of the upper river, pausing at levees and docks to unload cargo, stopping off at remote lumberyards to refuel, puffing out proud billows of smoke as they pressed on down bend after bend of the great river grandly florid emblems of civilization lording it over the wilderness. The panoramas were like recruitment posters for the new society rising at the edge of the world. Such images seemed to catch up audiences all over America in a tremendous surge of excitement, one they were barely able to explain or describe. Even a famous skeptic of American triumphalism like Henry David Thoreau could feel it. In his essay, Walking, he described his fascination with the Mississippi panoramas. As I worked my way up the river in the light of today and saw the steamboats wooding up, counted the rising cities, beheld the Indians moving west across the stream, still thinking more of the future than of the past or present... I felt that this was the heroic age itself, though we know it not.
1: That was actor Joseph Bromfield reading an excerpt from Wicked River, The Mississippi When It Last Ran Wild by Lee Sandlin. So now let's move into the 20th century.
0: For African Americans in the early and mid-20th century, tourism posed some unique challenges. Many gas stations, restaurants, and hotels in both the North and the South refused to serve black patrons.
2: So in the early 1930s, a New York City postman named Victor Green began collecting contact information for roadside businesses that would serve African Americans. His goal? to help black travelers avoid the inconvenience and humiliation of being turned away. In 1936, he published the first edition of the Negro Motorist Green Book, or the Green Book for short.
0: The Green Book was in print for decades and became a staple in African American households. But in his introduction, Victor Green wrote what he had hoped for. A day sometime in the near future when this guide will not have to be published, when we as a race will have equal rights and privileges in the United States. As it turns out, letters from African Americans documenting discrimination on the nation's roadways helped lead to the passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The Green Book ceased publication once the landmark legislation became law. Historian Susan Rue has compiled these letters. In an interview from a few years back, she told us how vacationing Black people helped shape one of the century's most important political debates.
6: When I first started working on this, people would say, Blacks vacationed? And I began to resent that as a very racist remark. Of course they vacationed. You know, Half the households in the United States after the war own a car. By 1960, that's three-quarters or 80% of households. And the idea of the car for blacks was if we have a car, then we don't have to sit in the Jim Crow section on the train. It promised them more freedom, more opportunity. And so to randomly run into... This discrimination must have been very sobering.
4: Dear Madam, I'm writing to find out if something can be done, maybe bringing a suit against mobile oil company because of an incident that happened in Shreveport, Louisiana. The
6: media may have focused its attention on buses and the more violent confrontations. These were everyday uh, uh, confrontations, what I call the the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement, who would just ride in, and they had all of this evidence of people being discriminated against.
4: We asked for the restrooms and were informed they didn't have restroom facilities for colored.
6: Yes, sir. I am a member of the NAACP. The letters were sent to headquarters, a lot of them, especially in the most egregious cases. And, you know, Thurgood Marshall, early on in the 50s, before he was appointed to the court, would look at them. Constance Baker Motley would look at them, and they did take action in in courts. The attendant or manager left the lugs loose deliberately, and when we was a good ways out on Highway 67, the wheel ran off. The rim contacted. I cannot tell you what handicaps are endured by Negro motorists traveling through the South, often for long and weary miles, unable to be sure of finding adequate accommodations for taking care of the normal physiological functions of the body and for rest. The first
4: two places displayed vacancy signs, but we were unable to get accommodations because they had been reserved.
6: They used these guidebooks, the Green Guide to Negro Tourism and Travel Guide and other guides, in part to tell them where they could stay and not be turned away. And the slogan of one of those books is vacation without humiliation.
4: People to the left, the right, in front and behind were served. Finally, I sensed that we were being ignored.
6: If you think of all the black people who packed their lunch in their car, who couldn't buy lodging, that was adding up. And this is where the change in travel and transportation industry comes through because as it becomes corporate and as, as it becomes chains, then the NAACP puts pressure on chains like Hilton at the top where these some of these people went to conventions to get change in the like South and throughout the country. They were
4: on their way to the ladies' restrooms that were in plain sight and had to be called back. We then had to stop on the highway like animals. We are members of the NAACP.
6: My sense is that the civil rights leaders recognized the the power of the family image in a time when the family was the dominant image of domesticity, this nuclear family. And I think they played to that in the hearings, and certainly Roy Wilkins plays to that and says, imagine a family on vacation— And this is July when he's talking. It's hot in Washington. These senators are probably thinking, when is the congressional break? I'm going to go on vacation. And so they have families, and they can relate to this stranded family that's sleeping in his car. I venture to predict that it will not be too much longer before concentrated action is taken by Negro Americans to combat this evil which has held sway for far too long along the nation's highways. Sincerely yours, Mrs. Jewel L. Gresham, doctoral student, Columbia University.
0: Susan Rue is a historian at Brigham Young University and the author of Are We There Yet? The Golden Age of American Family Vacations.
2: That's going to do it for today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about American history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to backstory@virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. And if you like the show, feel free to review it in Apple Podcasts. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by
1: Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in our show came from Pottington Bear, Ketza, and Jazar.
0: Additional help came from Courtney Spagna, Emma Gregg, and Robin Blue.
2: Special thanks this week to our readers, Brendan Wolfe, Matthew Gibson, Alicia Floyd, Stephen Tolliver, and Leslie Talaferro.
1: And thanks to the Johns Hopkins University Studio in Baltimore.
0: Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment.
7: Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.